What's going on? Welcome to Life's a Trip podcast. I'm Dave. And I am Chase. And uh, on this podcast, we explore all kinds of stuff, all the, the weird and winding individual paths that we all walk in life. Uh, our conversations range from mindfulness and relationships. All the way to psychedelic spirituality, and a whole bunch of weird, crazy, fun stuff. Yeah, and uh, we just we look at basically what it means to be anything at all. Or not. Or not. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, and I hope that you enjoy. Love you guys. See you on the other side. Peace. friends. Thanks for joining us. I've got an amazing conversation on the podcast today. Um, I couldn't have picked a, a better person to kick off my first solo podcast. Um, his name's Brian Stanford. Uh, I will introduce him further once the podcast begins. Um, yeah, uh, so right now Chase is up in Ohio and will be for a couple months before he moves down here to Asheville. And in the meantime, he will be recording up there. And I will be recording down here. I think he will be posting episodes on Sundays, and I will post on Wednesdays if all goes well. Um, this is an uh, amazing conversation that I just had with Brian, and I'm I'm psyched to share it. It's a bit longer; it's a little over an hour, but I guarantee you, if you stick around, uh, you are going to get a tremendous amount of value out of it. I know that I did. So, without further ado, here's my conversation with Brian Stanford. Life's a Trip podcast, episode three. I'm here with my my friend and coworker and uh, training partner, Brian Stanford. Hello. Welcome. Yeah. Um, uh, thank you for being willing to do this. I, you're, uh, to be honest, this is like driving over here. I uh, just finished uh, at jujitsu, and I, I was thinking on um, the kind of nervousness that I'm feeling driving up here. Uh-huh. To record this because the last time I the very first episode I was with my buddy Chase and it was something we've been talking about a while and he kind of he led off sure and so it's easy to kind of follow but to come up here and, and do this myself there's some nervousness and I was thinking there's an interesting parallel between doing the podcast and I also felt some nervousness coming into jujitsu uh-huh. I, I often have this nervous energy <laughs> I hadn't been in a couple couple days maybe like a week yeah and um yeah, it's just I think it's a good thing, but yeah, I mean it. I mean, you and I talked about this um, recently when you said you were doing a podcast, and I've been doing a YouTube channel, and it kind of fallen out of the um, practice of throwing up a video once a week and and trying to get that going again. And so I know exactly what you're talking about, and um, what I've found from making the YouTube videos, and it's a lesson I'm having to remember. For myself is um, that you just have to do it. Um, I think it's the same thing with jujitsu. I used to always feel really. I can remember uh, when I was training in Dallas, and every time I would drive to the gym for um, noon class, I would be nervous on the way there. Um, I don't particularly experience that with it now, but I definitely think that with you just have to get your foot in the door, mm-hmm. metaphorically and put your foot on the mat or whatever it is and just press record and start doing it and yeah just go from there yeah it's interesting uh, i remember 
So I just moved back to Asheville, obviously, as you know. But for our listeners, I just moved back to Asheville uh, about a month ago after spending the summer and fall back home in Michigan. And prior to leaving Asheville last year, maybe it was a little bit before that, um, I remember you communicating the idea of, of stepping into the ring, like no longer being an observer and watching from mm-hmm. the sidelines. Like mm-hmm. you've done enough kind of sorting out what's going on within you to be willing to, all right, I'm going to get in there. I'm going I'm to get in the middle. Yeah, this is something that I got um, from Althea, actually, who's my um, fiance. Uh, and we had been talking uh, when I moved to Asheville myself almost two years ago. I was at a point uh, in my spiritual development where I had been you know, practicing with various schools of meditation and different traditions um, for almost 30 years as kind of like a full-time thing and had gotten to the point um, through my meditation practice where I realized like, okay, the, uh, the phase of being a um, quote-unquote student is kind of over. Not that I'm like a master or have any kind of great realizations or anything like that, but you know, you can't really... Um, I don't think necessarily stay a student forever. Like at some point, at least for myself, I started to feel um, a responsibility to push um, the various things that I'm interested in a little bit further down the line. Uh, and that conversations with that about Alf, with Althea, she kind of framed it in the sense of like, well, yeah, you have to, you know, it's it's time to get into the arena. Uh, because one of my fears is stepping out and starting to not just be a consumer of spirituality or like go to someone else's meeting or whatever, but to start actually kind of leading and guiding things was, you know, immediate feelings of like, well, who the hell am I to do this? And um, who do I think I am? And obviously I'm a fraud and there are obviously people much more qualified than me and everyone's going to know that and see it. And, um, but I think with the analogy of like stepping into the arena, uh, I've heard it said in jujitsu that like, you know, if you go and compete, you can be worried about losing. You can be worried about losing in front of all the crowds there, but you've beaten every single person who's just standing on the sidelines, Ooh. you know? So um, as long as you're in the arena, you're, you're, you're far ahead of anybody that's going to be a detractor um, likely. Uh, and I think it's the same thing with podcasting or YouTubing or anything like that. You could, bog yourself down forever in um you know well <laughs> who am i like what's the pod like we're recording this podcast or like my youtube videos i'll use my own self as an example um you know i think the one that has the most views has like 200 views which is nothing in the world of youtube so it'd be really easy to start thinking oh my god who am i to be like so pompously setting up a camera and recording my thoughts on things like there's people who have you know millions of followers and get millions of views and but I think the point is just to get into uh, the arena and, and contribute to things um, and try to try to put out there what you feel like you have to offer. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I also felt like I've reached a point. It's like um, <clears throat> there's an incubation period mm-hmm. of like you got to sort through what's going on and journal and meditate and do your practices to the point at which like the next the only next step 
is to step forward and, and communicate it, to produce, no longer just take things in. Like, yeah. put things out into the world. Yeah, I think so. And, that, I mean, that's literally what we're doing right now. Right. This podcast is right. communicating the things that we've taken in through our journey so far and, um, and uh, sharing it with others because it's not only is it a nice reflection uh, from you and I like, to be able to communicate these things, but then I know from the feedback that I've got from people that have already listened to it, uh-huh. that they're like, they're getting something out of it, which is really yeah. cool. Yeah, definitely. It's one of the really neat things about the, um, I mean, I think it's really easy to <clears throat> kind of have our attention vectored towards the negative in regards to, you know, the modern world or whatever, and to look around at um, all the ways at which, you know, social media distracts us and eats our time or, you know, whatever horrible things are going on politically, you know, regardless of your orientation politically, everyone seems to think everything is, is bad and horrible. Um, but we also live in this amazing time where we can sit in our house with like a microphone in front of us and record a conversation and then put that out, um, you know, freely for people to listen to and um, hopefully get something from. And I mean, that's a pretty unique point in, I mean, it's an absolutely unique point in human history. Like moments like this uh, were never possible before and they completely are. And um, it's, it's really, I mean, not only is it like important and meaningful to do stuff like this, but it's really fun. It is um, so fun. Yeah. <laughs> even, even in spite of like the, the, uh, the nervousness, I think, maybe because of the nervousness, that, that transforming that nervous energy yeah. into excitement and like even joyfulness and playfulness. And yeah. Like, same thing with jujitsu. Yeah. You know, once yeah. I get on the mat, once I start rolling, it starts feeling really good. I'm like, I'm so glad I went. Well, in a, in a similar way, uh, it, it's the same kind of arena thing. Like jujitsu also becomes really, really fun when you stop worrying about winning or losing mm-hmm. you know not that you don't i mean not that there isn't this component in jujitsu where you you you're training because you're you're trying to get better so you do want to win but when you give up the the you know the super concern about winning or dominating or whatever and you can just fall into the place of flowing and being playful and inventive and um you know take risks and think outside the box and all that kind of stuff some of the the magic of it um becomes more apparent which uh is, is it's the same thing with with work you know like mm-hmm. at trader joe's like i mean the the moment i stop worrying about the size of the lines or the load that's coming tonight or the truck slate or you know whatever whatever the worry is and just kind of fall into the moment of having you know different human act interactions and being playful with customers and coworkers and um just enjoying the moment without a real um you know, in the in the Western magical traditions, they'll talk about, you know, for your for your spiritual practice to really be effective, you have to get rid of this uh, lust for a result, mm. you know, and this desire for a particular outcome, and you more just do the thing for doing the thing, yeah. you know, um, yeah, and that seems to apply pretty broadly. Well, yeah, I, I don't want to dig into that deeper, but uh, before we we go into that, maybe we can lead into that through this. Aspect of this this podcast that I want to focus on is like the weird paths that we all take in life, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, as we were talking about earlier, and from our conversation since I've m- met you, like you have one of the most fascinating paths that mm. I've, I've heard so far of people uh-huh. that I've met. Right. And uh, for our listeners, if you're open to it, I would love to have you share 
like your your winding path so far that has brought you to Asheville to this moment sitting here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I guess I would say when I try to think in chronological order of um, when that kind of started, I think when I was maybe 12 or 13 years old, maybe 13, 14, something like that, I'd gotten um, a book that people might know about called Modern Magic um, by, uh, his last name's Craig. I, I, can't, I hate that I can't remember his name. It's Daryl Michael Craig or Daniel Michael Craig. Uh, he wrote this book called Modern Magic um, that had uh, not only ideas about kind of philosophy and esoteric things, but it had like practical kind of magical experiments to, to carry out different rituals to do. And I can remember getting that book at a Barnes and Noble's bookstore and, you know, waiting till my parents and my sister were asleep at night and then doing uh, like, you know, standing in the middle of my bedroom in my bathrobe and summoning angels or whatever and, do you know, doing the different rituals that were in the book. And um, I feel like that's kind of the thing that started me out on my spiritual quest and path uh, a f very shortly after that, maybe a year after that, I discovered the Hare Krishnas and started going to the Hare Krishna temple a lot, like a lot, a lot. Like I would spend uh, for years, almost all my spare time there. I would spend the night on weekends when I could. As, um, a, as a teenager? Yeah. Mm -hmm. wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it was an interesting time because at, at that time in the, in the kind of mid to late 1980s, uh, I was involved in the punk rock music scene and there there was this crossover that was happening between kind of like straight edge punk rock music and the Hare Krishna movement. Mm. So where there are a couple of these like seminal um, straight edge American hardcore bands like Youth of Today and the Cro-Mags who um, became like those guys converted to the Hare Krishna movement and they started making like Hare Krishna punk rock music. And uh, so like at that time period, there were like a lot of young people hanging out at the Hare Krishna temple, particularly in Houston, because the scene was like kind of big. So we would, you know, like on the weekends, we would go to like hardcore shows. And then afterwards at like one in the morning or whatever, we'd drive to the temple and, um, you know, like one of the monks would get up and open the kitchen for us and bring out food and, you know, sit there with us on the floor while we ate and talk to us about philosophy and, um, spirituality and stuff and it was a uh, it was like i like to joke with people and say that it, it ruined my life um because it was it was this you know like 16 17 18 years old it's like a real seminal time in your development and all of a sudden you're meeting adults like you know people who joined the Hare christians in the 60s or 70s so these are like people who are my parents age mm -hmm. but who never went to college they never got jobs mm -hmm. they they dropped out of society and like they chant Hare Krishna and dance and play music in the street and feast all the time and sell books and talk about philosophy and all this kind of stuff. And so you're, like, you're seeing that as a young man, as you're being, you know, as your family and, and culture and everything's kind of trying to channel you in the direction of college and a job and career. But you, you're, you're also seeing this like other side of things, which yeah. really, you know, kind of turned my life upside down. Yeah, you're um, going down one path and someone opens the door and like, yo, there's this other there's a, thing. There's a whole other thing over here. And you're like, I, 
kind of like the people that I'm talking to on this path. Like, yeah, and it was fascinating. And as like a, a 17 or 18 year old, like you see mm, these people who are, you know, blissed out from meditating all the time and chanting and all this kind of stuff. And they seem like way happier than the adults you're interacting with through your family. Mm-hmm. You know, like people who like have children and have bills and have a mortgage and all these kinds of things that these monks like didn't have. Yeah. Um, and it was a, a very a kind of attractive um, seductive thing at the same time I could never uh, I could never bring myself to just become a monk like I, I always really liked the company of women and I liked having girlfriends and stuff like that so I, I could never um, see myself becoming a monk so I would always kind of have a girlfriend so I always kind of had like one foot in one foot out and then um, a few years down the line uh, one of the gurus at the, at the Hare Krishna temple one day just kind of like brought me in and was like hey so you know, obviously you're not going to become a monk, so that's okay. So here's what we're going to do. You're going to marry so-and-so. And they had a girl. You're going to marry her. Um, you're going to live in that house like three blocks down the road. You're going to sell books. She's going to cook for the temple. Blah, 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 blah. And this guy's just like laying out like here's what your life's going to be. And it scared me to death. I yeah. was like, I oh my God, I can't. There's no way. I can do that, and I, I kind of like ran away from that's, the I temple. Mean, that's even clo- more closed off than like you need to go to college and you need to get a job. Yeah. Like that's like oh you're gonna this, here here's this. Yes, like, yeah, it, it, it was super intense, and so that kind of like pushed me away from from the Hare Krishnas for a while. And I I but I was at this point I was like fully um, committed to uh, a spiritual path. Like I had become um, nowadays when I talk about it, I call it the the Gnostic urge. Uh, had been a, a, awakened in me so the I, I think about these things I conceptualize them as like you know you'll you um, everybody you meet is somewhere on the spectrum of experiencing like discomfort suffering things aren't quite right we're always kind of trying to make things better but a lot of people think that like that means you know once they start making more money everything will be better or they get the right job or they get the right partner or you know whatever they arrange the puzzle pieces of the material world correctly and that that will bring happiness but pretty early on i got convinced that that was not the case that there that there was something um that there was something inside of me that was looking for something bigger that could never be achieved through um, material aims so I, I call it the Gnostic urge, the, the sense of like you recognize there's a door or a curtain that no one else is paying attention to and you get interested in trying to figure out what's behind the door or the curtain. And so I was kind of off and running on this path, but I was I was also young. I was like 19 or 20 at this point, moved out, uh, uh, you know, got an apartment with the girlfriend that I was with at the time. And um, I'd been kind of ruined for working jobs by interacting with the Hare Krishnas like I knew I didn't want to have a job but I also wanted to have an apartment and wanted to have a girlfriend and and wanted to have you know like all the basic things that you need so I got into selling drugs I started selling drugs to um, make money and at that time this was like the early if I get too detailed with stuff just like push me along Um, keep keep rolling man I'm fascinated okay so this is like the I started off selling marijuana and psychedelics because I'd been straight edge for years, and and then I when I left the Hare Krishnas, I was like, well, let me let me um, 
let me go back. Let me try smoking weed again. It'd been years since I smoked weed. Yeah. And then I, I, I moved into this area of Houston called the Montrose, which at the time, now it's a very affluent part of town. But at that time, it was kind of like um, there were a lot of gay people that lived there. And then there were like a lot of artists and kind of hippie types. And so it was that kind of area. And I fell in with some people who were doing a lot of psychedelics. And um, so I began taking psychedelics pretty regularly, started selling marijuana, started selling psychedelics. And um, um, just kind of, I don't know, like as things happen, uh, I started reading a whole lot of William S. Burroughs, uh, people like that. And this was right at the time, like the early 90s, that there was this, like this first kind of like repopularization of heroin. Um, so you had like the grunge stuff in Seattle that was going on. And um, so heroin was becoming like this popular thing, particularly where I lived in Houston. Like I said, I was reading a lot of William S. Burroughs. Um, and, and other poets and authors who had used opium, who'd used heroin. Um, I liked writing. Uh, I started kind of wanting to experiment with um, opiates. And I, I very quickly saw that there was like a lot more money to be made with opiates than with psychedelics and, yeah, and marijuana. So I was like, I don't need to do that every day. And it's like, oh, every six months, I'm good. Yeah. And so... I started selling heroin and I started using heroin and um, I got really strong. I got addicted. I was addicted to heroin for a good, I always try to think in my mind, like how many years that it was. It was, I mean, it's kind of worthwhile saying it was like at least 10 years of, you know, active heroin addiction or um, methadone use. So this is like the end of your teens early 20s yeah yeah early 20s um but i was still very interested in spirituality so (laughs) it was really kind of weird like there was a time period in there that i lived in a zen monastery but i was also like selling heroin and and using heroin all the time and i would like wake up in the morning and do a shot of heroin and then go do zen meditation for like two hours and then like read buddhist scriptures for a couple of hours go sell some heroin do some more heroin do some more meditation read more scriptures sell more heroin <laughs> like were the, were the people that ran the monastery aware no no absolutely not for a while for a while um um you know like i think it's just kind of inevitable or at least it was for me like that kind of lifestyle is not maintainable for very long it's like sustainable no, it's, it's definitely not a sustainable lifestyle. And the more I started to use heroin, just like the more, you know, obviously strung out and weird I was. Um, and so eventually I, I moved out of the, the Zen temple. And um, But I, I say all that to say I, I stayed very interested in, in spirituality um, all this time and, and was kind of living this double life of like this dirtbag um you know, heroin addict who would, who would, you know, steal from people and stuff like that, but also was trying to like live this spiritual life and, you know, think that like, well, I mean, I, I, you know, heroin addicts can do all kinds of like interesting mental gymnastics where, you know, you convince yourself that like, well, you know, yeah, I'm stealing, but these are just conventional moral laws. And, and, you know, there's this transcendent spirituality that's beyond all of that, that can't get touched by that, which is complete bullshit by the way, if, you, if you're listening to this <laughs> and you're thinking that. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nobody using that, it's bullshit. <laughs> right. Uh, but I was very adept at using that. And, um, Jiu-jitsu. Jiu-jitsu yeah, yeah. with mine. <laughs> yeah. And so for years and years, I, I was involved 
was actively addicted to heroin and um, and still deeply studying spirituality. And then uh, in the somewhere in the early 2000s, I got off of heroin, but got on methadone and kind of moved away from selling drugs. But by this time, I had like some serious legal troubles in the town that I was living in. And so I, I the police were looking for me. Um, I had a real interesting run in with the with a police officer one day who like I was walking a dog and he was um, eating dinner with his family in a restaurant and like came storming out of the restaurant and was like stopped me. And, and but he had like plain clothes. He was like he wasn't working, you know, but he was like, I know your face. I've seen your face. I know that we're looking for you. You know, give me your ID. And I was like, I don't have my ID on me. And he, you know, I gave him some fake name and and. Uh, and he finally, he just told me, he was like, you're so lucky I'm here with my family and I don't have my, you know, radio or my cruiser or whatever. Wow. Like he was convinced that he knew who I was and that I was wanted. But like, I don't know, for whatever reason, he just didn't want to hassle with it at that moment. And um, like I, he went back into the restaurant. I like picked the dog up and ran yeah. and uh, <laughs> and like left town within like two days. Yeah, packed up. And <laughs> packed up and left town. Yeah. And um was living in another town and it was in this very terrible space to where I knew I didn't want to be involved in a criminal life anymore. And I knew I didn't want to um, continue to use illicit drugs and opiates. I was on meth methadone at the time, but I wasn't using any other drugs. Um, but I was also on the run from the police and my ID was expired and I couldn't drive a car because I was worried about getting pulled over and I couldn't rent an apartment and I couldn't get a job because I didn't have an ID. So it was like in this, I was just, from my perspective, I was just trapped. Yeah. And my parents were um, trying to convince me to turn myself in, but I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I, I just, there was something in me that I just couldn't, you know, I knew if I turned myself in, it was going to be big trouble and I, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. So um, I came up with the brilliant idea that I was going to um, um, rob some banks to try to uh, make some money to like get out of the country or get out of town or you know do something like that and uh, um, and that's exactly what I did and uh, so I, I robbed a couple of banks um, with a note and uh, uh, ended up going to got caught and ended up going to prison. Can I ask uh, real quick, what did the note say? If you don't mind sharing it. Uh, something like, you know, give me all the money and nobody gets hurt or something like okay. that. And um, the uh, again, like I'm not suggesting this is an idea for anyone to do. This is a very stupid thing to do. But banks generally have a policy that like they're just going to give you the money yeah. so that you get the hell out of there and no one gets hurt, right? And they just assume they'll re recoup the money later. And you don't get a ton of money robbing a bank. I mean, like in the movies, people are vaulting over over counters and like robbing yeah. safes and stuff like that. But that's not at all how it works. You know, you get a very little amount of money for the amount of trouble that you end up getting in. Um, and so, I, but anyway, I, I was desperate and I did this and um, I got arrested and I went to prison and I got sentenced to 10 years in prison. And in Texas? In Texas, yep. Mm -hmm. And uh, I ended up serving six years in prison and did four years on parole after prison. And um, 
it's a it's a it's a really curious thing um i guess like i have this very strange relationship with my past in that regard in that you know prison was this um incredibly hard difficult terrible painful traumatic thing that still reverberates in my life um, and at the same time I have zero doubt that it completely saved my life um, I don't think anything short of prison would have allowed me uh, the chance to just reset everything and um, have this time to really look at myself and what I was doing with my life and um, to really start to reflect on what uh, my actions, like what the results of my actions were, um, not only to myself, but to, you know, like these expanding out rings of people, like the, the, the effect that it had on my mother and my sister and my father, and then my broader family from that, and then my community that I had done terrible things too and then you know the people working in the bank that day and then just even like the fabric of society being affected by things like that and then the the ways in which <clears throat> i think um these kinds of immoral actions can cause these little rips and tears in um kind of like the like the womb of existence or something like it 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 um I got very clear, let's just say, I got very clear on um, the uh, the impact that my actions had on the world and the significance of um, how we are in the world uh, and, and what we do. Real quick, like, so, first of all, that's an incredible way of looking at, like, and, and sharing, like, period when you first got in there where you were just angry and like pissed off that you got caught or like what, what were like how long did it take for those uh, realizations and that mm. clarity to set in well when I first got caught and was going to trial as you can imagine um, bank robbery is a serious crime yeah. so I was in like maximum security kind of um, places and that have you know everything you think about and then lots of things you can't even conceive of without having been there um kinds of things that are in maximum security prisons so like racialized gangs and people getting killed and people getting raped and robbed and fights and you know all of that kind of stuff so um in the beginning it was really just a sense of like okay I'm here. I'm going to be here. Like yeah, this, this is existence reality, now. This is my reality. Right. And like how Jesus. do I how do I where do I fit right. here? Yeah. You know? Like I mean, it, it's it's a weird thing, but like let's say like you're not a racist white guy, right? You're like how you are. You're like this dude in Asheville just like I am, right? Who who's, you know, I mean, whatever. Like we're just we're 
Asheville people and everything that comes with that. And then all of a sudden, you're thrown in a maximum security southern prison. Yeah. And you know the and that's how Texas was. And the reality of that at that kind of level is everyone's divided by racial groups, and that is how you survive. You know, and, and it's just the, the protection of that racial group. The protection, the associations, the friendships, the everything that gets um, cultivated in that way. And it's very, I mean, like if you haven't, you know, if, unless you're like somebody who's been involved in gangs before, like it's very shocking to, to see, you know, how that stuff is and how that stuff works. And, um, and, and like I said, like trying to find your place in that. And that was, it was very, very weird and um, fast and, and terrifying. And um, uh, so there was, a, there was, I don't know that I felt a whole bunch of anger because I never felt like, I mean, I always, when I was in prison, I would hear guys complain about, oh man, I can't believe, you know, they gave me five years for that bullshit. I don't deserve that. Like, and I mean, from day one, I just always thought, like, I'm one of the people that this place is built for. Like, I've, I've, I've earned my way here. You know, like, no injustice is occurring to me. Um, and years later, I, I, I heard a, a wizened old uh, convict uh, who I'm still friends with. He's he got out luckily and is doing really good too. But um, one of the things he told me that just completely shifted my perspective, even to this day. Is he says everybody always says they want justice, and he was like, I don't want justice. Like if I got justice, mm -hmm. it, it, I'd still be in prison. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I want and need and want to be worthy of mercy, redemption. and grace and redemption, yeah. not justice. I don't want justice. Mm -hmm. You know, so I never felt mad about my condition. Like I knew I had put myself there, and I knew that <clears throat> whatever was coming my way <clears throat> was going to be, you know, just and. Uh, my grandmother who's passed away um, now uh, but who had been always a very dear close person in my life the day I got sentenced to 10 years I was calling you know my various family members after court um, and telling them what had happened and every, I mean as you can imagine like if you're a father and your son is calling to say he just got sentenced to 10 years in prison I mean everyone was devastated and I called my grandmother and I was so worried about how she was going to react because she, I mean, she's just always been like hugely close and involved in my life and all this kind of stuff. And I told her, you know, I got 10 years in prison and she was, she was this sweet old white Mississippi lady, this great, beautiful, honey dripping accent. And she just said, oh, honey, I am so grateful. I can't believe I thought they were going to put you under the prison. And, like, she was happy that I had gotten 10 years in prison. You know, like, she thought I was going to get, like, 50 years in prison. And I can remember just, like, laughing and feeling like this. I feel it even now, like, recalling it, like, this lightness of being of, like... You're right. You're right. Holy shit. You know, holy crap. Exactly. I, I only got 10 years. So I never felt angry about my plight. But, like, <clears throat> it was definitely... It, the, the early times were, like, trying to figure out, uh, like you know, who and what I was going to be, um, and to, to what degree, uh, because I went through a period of thinking like, okay, well, this is just my life now. Like, this is who I am. So I'm just going to be, I was a grimy, gritty, you know, junkie criminal on the streets. I'll be a grimy, gritty, you know, convict or whatever. Like, I'll just kind of be that. And, um, 
I wish I would have written this down in a journal because I would like to know the date of when this happened. But I remember having this very vivid, um, you know, like <clears throat> almost like a vision of that I was this person who was really attracted to like the outlaw life, right? I, I, I always have been. Like I, I loved playing cowboys and Indians and all that kind of stuff. I've always been attracted to the outlaw. And, but at the same time, I always wanted a girlfriend who had a job and who had, because somebody had to be able to keep the right. shit together, right? Yeah. Um, and, I, and I liked having relationships with my family and, and things like that. And I realized like I was like the proverbial person standing with one foot in the boat and one foot on the dock. Mm -hmm. And I was never, you know, the dock to me was like straight life, like yeah. conventional life. And the boat was the outlaw life. And I was like, well, if I'm going to fully be an outlaw, then I have to take my foot off the dock and just get fully in the outlaw boat and sail off and accept that prison's going to be a part of that, getting arrested's going to be a part of that, fighting, all that stuff's going to be a part of that. Or I have to take my foot out of the outlaw boat and fully get on the dock. And then all of this, like, lying stealing cheating conniving all of that stuff i have to let that go and fully be on the dock but i can't be one in one out i just can't do it anymore and by that time i was like <clears throat> past trial and i was in prison and i hadn't prayed for a really long time but when the bus pulled up to the back of the prison and it was like going through the gates and you're coming in and people are yelling at the bus and yeah. all that kind of stuff and you're about to walk off and, um, you know, you're all chained up and I mean, all the stuff. And, uh, I prayed and the prayer that I prayed was, you know, no matter what happens when I get off this bus, please, you know, let me conduct myself in a way that will not bring shame to the men in my ancestral line. Like my father, my uncle, my grandfather, my great grandfather, like all of that. Let me conduct myself in a way that I could stand in front of them <clears throat> and be okay with. Wow. And so when I thought about the dock or the boat, I was like, I can't do the boat. Like, no, like, no, my dad that. didn't slog through Vietnam and, you know, go to college afterwards and marry my mom and have me for me to fuck it all off in prison. You know, my yeah. grandfather didn't work at a cotton mill and die on a cotton gin floor dirt poor Tennessee for me to waste all these opportunities, you know, that have been, I mean, that was another thing that got really clear to me is like, I, I had, you know, my father had, had fought his way from poverty to the middle class. I mean, literally like literally in Vietnam with yeah. a gun in his hand. Yeah. That's the only way he was able to go to college. First person in his family to go to college. He fought his way to the middle class. Yes. Oh, and, he had just been trying to hand me these things that he had earned with blood, you know, and I just spurned him and, and was like, no, I, I, I want to use drugs. and find my own way. Exactly. It was so, like, the, just deeply ungrateful and disrespectful. And I just got to this point very clearly in prison where I was like, I can't do that anymore. Like, I just can't do that anymore. Um and so after that, prison for me very much became um, like this chance to um, just fully try to remake myself 
you know, physically, mentally, spiritually. So I got like really into working out all the time. I, you know, um, I mean, it's, it's, I surrounded myself. I know people never, I don't feel like people really understand when I've tried to express what I'm about to say right now, but I surrounded myself in prison with some of the best people I've ever known in my life. Um, now, some of those people got out of prison and went right back to drugs and, and fell back into the, their, their past things. But when they were in prison, the bonds made were so tight um, uh, that, you know, I like to tell people it's like, you know, with your fr- with my friends in prison, if they had a dollar, I had 50 cents. You know, if they had, I mean, this literally, if they had a soup, I had half the soup. Like there were times that that happened. Like that was the only food we had. And those people would give you half of what they had. Like no questions asked, you know, like, like brothers in a way that I've never experienced since I've, since I've been out and, and I feel like I've always been trying to re-experience. Um, so I surrounded myself with really, really good people, got, my body together, um, you know, there's tons of drugs in prison. I didn't do drugs when I was in prison. I, I got myself away from that. Um, I started thinking about what I ate and how much water I drank and, you know, working out and meditating and studying. Um, and uh, I worked my way from maximum security till at the end I was at like a trustee camp. So like no fences, no walls, no guns, um, you know, like the only thing keeping you there was just you had the good enough sense to not walk away. Yes, you know, yeah, I've come this far. Yes, uh, and <laughs> I'm almost, I I'm almost graduated. Right, <laughs> and at that time, I, I started taking some college classes uh, just because I wanted to learn some things, and I, I took an anthropology course with this brilliant um, professor named Margaret um, Roche, and she would stay after and hang out with some of us guys who who would stay after until the guard, you know, would would kick us out or whatever. And one of the things that she told me that really struck me is she said that, you know, prison provided one of the last spaces in our culture for men to undergo the shamanic journey that you had fallen ill with the diseases of your culture, right? Like drug addiction, crime, violence, whatever it is you would and this is the shaman's path like in traditional societies that still have shaman before someone becomes a shaman they usually get incredibly sick like near death sick and sometimes they die and and and, um this is part of the path and and she said you know you have fallen ill with the diseases of the culture and you have died and now you're in the underworld like prison is the underworld and most people don't make it out of the underworld right like Prisons have like a 75 to 80% recidivism rate. And heroin addiction probably has something similar. 75, 80, 90% recidivism rate. Like most people don't make it out of the underworld. Like the spiritual journey isn't this guarantee, you know, particularly if you take the path of like getting sick with the diseases of your culture and dying and traveling through the underworld. But she was like, you guys are in the underworld right now. And at some point you're going to resurrect. They're going to let you out. And what are you going to do? You know, are you going to use your time in the underworld, uh, like like Christ, in the sense of like stealing the keys of hell and 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 releasing the prisoners there? Are you going to do that? Are you going when you get resurrected? Are you going to try to bring something back to 
the culture from which you've grown ill. Which is that's the hero's journey. That's the hero's that's journey. The journey. Yeah. Of the yes. Facing the darkness. The yes. Death. Yes. And then like returning with the gifts. Right. Of, of the of the, the crone or like you know. Yes. Which is interesting is like coming back to what you knew with some new understanding. Right. Of the world. Right. Um, and so I got fired up with that, but from this this professor and um, really started you know, like viewing my path in that way, like, okay, yes, I'm in the underworld now. What do I do with that? Like, how do I, how do I resurrect myself? What am I going to be like when I come out? And I was also really lucky that I'm getting this from an anthropology professor who also took the time to say like, Hey guys, you know what else is going to happen when you get out? You're going to have culture shock. And this is one of the big things that sends people back because they don't expect it to happen, so they don't know it's happening when it happens. Um, I remember right after I had gotten out, I was at a grocery store with my father, and I was standing at the milk case looking at cheese or something, and people kept walking in front of me, right? Because that's just what happens. Like, people just walk in front of you. People, people walking. But in prison, no one would ever do that. Like, like prison is greased with all of these rituals of politeness, almost like a samurai society or something you know like they say like when samurais would walk between each other they would kind of extend their right hand to show you that they weren't about to draw their sword right so like prison is greased with um prison is greased with all of these uh rituals of respect and all of a sudden I'm at this grocery store and there's people like walking in front of me just haphazardly and bumping you yeah and I'm thinking how dare these people yeah. disrespect me like this, you know? Um, this is the kind of disrespect that you couldn't let go right. of in prison. If I don't respond, the, my exactly. ass is on the line. Right. Yeah. But then I would remember, like, oh, wait, I'm having culture shock yeah, right now. Yeah. <laughs> Bring it down a level. Let again. me just go outside, <laughs> you know? So um, so I had this, like, very beneficial experience of having this, this powerful woman uh, teach me these things before I got out. Um, and so then I, I got out of I got out of prison and um, uh, and have just been kind of continuing on that that journey. I uh, after prison I dove um, very very deeply into Buddhist studies, which had kind of been like a constant in my life for a long long time. And um, I got very involved with a <clears throat> traditional lineage of Vajrayana Buddhism, which is the Buddhism from Tibet, and. Um, I was involved with a lineage called the Aro Terror, the Aro lineage, and I was working towards ordination in that that lineage. So I was going through like their version of seminary for four or five years, um, um, deeply involved in in that practice. Uh, and I mean, I'm I'm kind of skipping around at this point, but uh, at the end of kind of almost like thirty years of meditation practice. Um, and, and these spiritual searches, I, I had um, what I considered to be um, an enlightenment experience or an awakening experience. Uh, uh, I guess it's worth mentioning that at that time after prison, I had gotten married and then went through a divorce like nine years later. And that all kind of culminated in this waking up and this awakening, um, which oddly for me, um, propelled me into Christianity, which had been something I had never 
ever considered seriously as a spiritual path. And uh, but my it's odd, you know, most people's awakening experience in Buddhism is they wake up to the kind of thing that the Buddha traditionally taught that there is no self, um, that all of that kind of solidity is an illusion. Um, for me, it was very much a waking up to uh, that while that non-dual experience is part of it, there is also a soul or spirit or whatever you want to call it, Atman, for using the language of Buddhism or Hinduism, um, that there is this eternally existing divine spark that is our true self and it is in relation to this blazing fire of divinity and so um i had that experience and was kind of it, it was not the awakening experience at all that i was expecting to have and it propelled me out of um what i considered to be my spiritual home of buddhism um, and, and sent me on this path of trying to understand uh, Christianity from a esoteric perspective. Um, so like from the, from... Can you explain esoteric? I hear the word all the time and I've looked it up and I've like read the definition. Can you explain what esoteric means? Yeah, so like if we're talking about religion, um, we could say that all religions have what they would call an exoteric aspect and then they have an esoteric aspect. And really simply um, exoteric means like outer and esoteric means inner right so if we're talking about christianity just to give like a quick example we would say like an exoteric teaching of christianity is that you know jesus christ was the literal son of god he was a man who walked on the earth and he was crucified died three days he was resurrected and he did all that to literally um, pay for sin that had happened with Adam and that the way to salvation is to believe that story that I just said, yeah. right? That that, like is, that is the exoteric understanding okay. of Christianity. And there could be many esoteric interpretations of that. Um, but basically a, a way to think about esoteric is like kind of peeling back the layers to try to see what's inside that it goes back to that thing i was talking about earlier of like the gnostic urge mm -hmm. to peer behind yeah, the curtain, the curtain back right to even recognize that there's a curtain yes and then like go and try to find a way through it right yeah right yeah and so um the years since then have been um an attempt to uh like i, I feel this really um strong um mission and it, it, it almost sounds silly to say it out loud but this goes back to the arena thing that Althea taught me is that you know um, I can I can fall into thinking like oh it sounds really silly to say this but I'll just say it like I feel a very strong mission that part of my thing that I'm needing to bring back to the culture is a deep appreciation and relationship and understanding with our um, spiritual tradition which is I'm not saying our, our ancestral spiritual tradition is the Baptist church or the Catholic church or something like that, but our uh, ancestral spiritual tradition um, um, in the West 
is the idea fundamentally stripped of all labels and terms that the the core thing inside of me that is me that is the thing that's looking out of my eyes and hearing through my ears is a piece of the divine roaring fire of divinity mm. and that, that thing has uh, i would argue never been created can never be destroyed mm-hmm. um, is eternal as and is in eternal relationship to a deity that can take on personalized aspects so when i say that's our spiritual tradition i would trace that back through um, the americas through europe back through iran all the way to india and the ideas that are in the vedas and things like that that have spread through the world and have been filtered down to us through the traditions of christianity um mm-hmm. yeah hell yeah <laughs> hell yeah I, I, that's uh eloquently put man like I, I i love your passion and in your story is just like it's captivating i'm, I'm so happy to mm. have gotten to hear it again because i mean we, we've gotten little pieces here and there in yeah. between rolling and you know a couple car rides you know like so thank you so much for sharing that it's incredible well it's a it's and, a scary thing to talk about sometimes because you know you you i know i start to worry like oh crap okay well who's gonna hear this yeah. And then how will, you know, um, because not everybody knows these stories about me. And then, like, how does that then affect um, people viewing me as I am now? But every time I express that doubt oh, to yeah. people, what I get back in return is, no, 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 you need to share yeah. that story. So, um, you know, this is, again, like that thing of being in the arena and, yes. and trying to push yeah. past the, the fear. If anything, I feel like that. The, the path that you've walked uh, gives further weight to the realizations that you've come to. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're if you're talking to me about the same truths that you're kind of talking about, but you've lived a really cushy life where you haven't really pushed yourself outside of your boundaries, mm-hmm. uh, it'd be a different thing. I wouldn't I wouldn't take it. But you know, right, you, right. You, you you have gone through some shit. Dude. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh yeah I, I it really resonates deeply with me and uh, and the the idea of the divine spark which is a part of this roaring, blazing, hot, mm-hmm. like, sun of divinity mm-hmm. is something that I absolutely feel. Yeah. And I, I, and I think, like, that is the essence of um, all spiritual practices and, and schools of thought. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's easy to get away from that. I think people get lost in the weeds. And I think if, if you can return to that and, and move outward from Yeah, it's it's a really fascinating thing, and um, um, Ron, who trains jujitsu yeah. with us, is kind of like um, uh, going through the philosophical side of this path right now because he's also because when you when I hear you say like this is a thing that's in all spiritual traditions, I just want to um, kind of do like a little Sam Harris thing and dig into that for just mm-hmm. a second and say that like I don't actually think it is, okay. um, and uh, I think this is one of the fundamental differences philosophically and spiritually and esoterically with with my i would say like with what i'm talking about and say buddhism Mm -hmm. which would say no actually that thing that you have that you think is this spark of the divine if you really pay attention to it you'll start to notice that it flickers in and out of being it's not there all the time that it disappears and comes back and it's not really real Mm. um and that's according to uh, buddhist tradition yeah i i think that's a pretty i feel pretty confident in saying that that's a pretty accurate um 
portrayal of a common thread in all forms of Buddhism okay. is that the sense of a lasting, permanent, um, solid, continuous, separate, permanent self is an illusion, is a, a core tenet of Buddhism. Um, but, and I think Ron is in this moment having the experience that I had years ago of like, uh, and it's this really interesting thing because if you do pay attention to it through very, very focused, granular, scientific meditation, like Vipassana or something that you're doing on retreat or you're doing really, really in a dedicated way, you will start to notice like, oh wait, it does flicker, right? Which you could then extrapolate that the self is not permanent. Mm -hmm. But this thing that I've been on about recently is like, okay, it flickers, but it always comes back. Right. Which to me points to its permanence more than the flickering points to its impermanence, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I, oh, um, real quick, so this is telling me, the app is telling me that this is going to run out in 60 minutes. So let me um, yeah, yeah. wrap this up really quickly and then let's take a break. And if you're open to it, uh, push on a little bit further. Sure, sure, man. Absolutely. So the coming in and out, the flickering, mm -hmm. um, is something that I have experienced through psychedelic experiences with like yeah. this disintegration yes. of ego and self and like really blasting off in these deep yes. psychedelic experiences with mushrooms or LSD. Yes. And the return and like total like, well, this is it, my reality, like I'm in purgatory or like my myself has been disintegrated totally. Right. And then returning to reality and like coming back to this like Oh man, it's so good to be alive! Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, my, my face like I'm still you know it's me like yeah, oh yeah oh yeah. thank goodness yeah yeah and like that's a it, having those experiences gives me this deep satisfaction and like appreciation for the weird reality that we live in yeah it's like the solidity of this thing that we return to after various experiences yeah is uh it, it's it's very nice it's yeah. a nice thing to return to yeah 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 and um. And if anything, those experiences have, has given me like a deeper sense of like a spiritual um, essence of like, mm -hmm. I, am, I am something. Right. I am something in the universe. Right, right. I, I agree with you. I think the those psychedelic states, particularly like the hell realm psychedelic mm -hmm. states, um, uh, have given me um, a very deep confidence in the kind of continuity of capital s self like i would say small s self absolutely let's dissolve and transcend that you know but the the capital s self seems to have the indestructible ability to wade through any hell realm and refocus on its divine unbreakable undestroyable essential nature and that's um, perhaps that's what brought you through heroin addiction and prison like that was like some, some part of you is like kind of ushering you along like just keep going man just keep going you got this yeah and i think it's a, a realization of you are uh there's well, i mentioned early on the the Hare krishna punk rock bands there's a, a song by one of the bands called shelter saying the song's called busy doing nothing and it's talking about kind of you know wasting your life in various material pursuits but not to forget that like you are meant for something more than all of that and that was a hugely transformative experience for me is when i really really tasted and and like realized in my bones that wait a minute 
I'm meant for something more than heroin addiction and prison and being a liar and a thief and all of these kinds of things. Like I am, I am, I am throwing away my patrimony, you know, like I, I'm, I'm, um, there's a Gnostic scripture that makes the analogy of, of the, the, the person in the story has to come uh, down into some world to capture this pearl from a dragon in the story. But when he gets down there in Egypt, which is the analogy for the world, he, it says he starts to wear the clothes of the Egyptians. He starts to eat their food. He marries one of the Egyptian women. He becomes completely enmeshed in the world and he forgets what his mission is, you know, um, uh, uh, this is esoteric, in my opinion, esoteric interpretation for when the Bible says don't marry foreign women, right? It's not talking about like don't marry a woman from another country. You know, it's saying don't forget what you are, right? Like, yeah. like, um, like that. Yeah. I, I see where. Yeah, let's, uh, let's let's pause, put a put a little yeah. note in it, and uh, take a break and shake it off, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll be back in a minute. Great. the break and um just looking at the time i think we're gonna have to kind of wrap this up um and it's, it's clear that there's a lot to continue so i think we're just gonna have to do a future sure absolutely i would love to future yeah. episode because there's like i want to dig into so much i mean we've talked about the the spiritual practice of jujitsu mm -hmm. uh, as well as just like the the importance of like a physical practice right yeah um, i want to talk about the uh, inner alchemy yeah which is a fun topic uh, I'd love to get into, you know, you always talk about seek the mysteries. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I definitely want to dig into that. Um, but I think we're going to have to say that for another time. Um, I guess before we finish, uh, where can people find you? Like, what, I, I know you're, you're talking about doing a YouTube video. Like, uh, uh -huh. Yeah, you can find my, my YouTube channel is Modern Gnostic. Um, uh, Gnostic spelled G-N-O-S-T-I-C, I think. Uh, you can find me on there. And then um, I have a blog at Seek the Mysteries WordPress. You can find that. Um, and then if you're on Facebook, there's Brian Stanford on there. I don't know how many Brian Stanfords there are, but I'm the profile picture of the guy staring at red light. Uh, and if you're in Asheville, um, we have a Gnostic church that... Um, meets at least twice a month sometimes more and we um, celebrate mass and we typically have some kind of meditation night um, we're probably going to be doing some book study stuff going into the new year um, and so uh, you can plug in with that too if you're in Asheville and want to come out and experience uh, practices of western esotericism mystical Christianity um, Kabbalistic meditation inner alchemy all of that stuff um, we do that with the church and peeking behind the curtain. Peeking behind the curtain, and then if you're interested in uh, jujitsu, you and you're in the Asheville area, you should check out uh, our gym, Rogue Combat Club, with my good friend and teacher Johnny Buck and Brian Ashlin. Um, it's a great jujitsu community there. Um, a great, like I talked about, surrounding yourself with positive people. I think Rogue's one of the places in town where you can surround yourself with um, maybe some rough cut, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> to put it rough lightly. cut people, but very, very good hearted, loving um, tribe 
is what super it supportive. To me. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, it blows my mind. Like, yeah. And thank you for introducing me to that community because I just like it's been fantastic. Yeah, I walk around with a rogue T-shirt or sweatshirt or something on all the time because I I'm wearing I'm wearing I have a sweatshirt and a T-shirt on underneath it. Um, But yeah, I I think jujitsu has been a huge part of my life. Uh, Martial arts, something I really didn't talk about, but it's been a huge part of my life. But um, jujitsu, particularly grappling, um, I think is a a really great um, practice for both men and women. Um, that can just transform you in ways that you can't imagine, like physicality and confidence and all that stuff, and then in ways that you probably can't imagine until you've been doing it for a while. Um, so I would definitely recommend people check them out too. Something that just popped in my mind is uh, a visual visualization or a vision that you had in prison of uh, a foot on both mm. the dock and the boat and like having to let the boat go to outlaw go. Yeah. And how interesting it is that you end up at Rogue yeah, with a, with a bunch of like rough cut individuals, like totally. You're getting that 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 need kind of fed. Yeah, with some I, yahoos. I think there's a way in which you can be a um, kind of a spiritual outlaw or divine outlaw or something like that, um, which looks, in my opinion, very different than what people think about. We, you and I, were talking about this the other day, and maybe we could get into doing talking about this on a, at another time on the podcast, but. Just to give an example, um, I think there's ways in which you can be an outlaw in this culture that probably look extremely conventional. One I would mention is, say, monogamy. I think committed monogamy is an outlaw stance in this culture, um, particularly where we live. I think using your sexuality in a way that's focused and concentrated and intentional and spiritual and meant for growth and positivity and not just enjoyment and um you know, I think that's an outlaw stance in our town for sure. Yeah. And in the broader culture where, you know, we just have Tinder and you're swiping past people and like you're shopping at a grocery store or something that's like super gross. Meat market. But it's totally conventional and it's the way that people look at things and people kind of think that like marriage and monogamy are outdated and all of this. And it's, you know, the true... Um, I mean, for years, I was involved in Tantra and Vajrayana, and not Tantra in like the sexual way, but the way it's seen in the East in Tantra is that Tantra is an intentionally transgressive practice. So like in the East, in, in, in a Hindu culture, tantrics drink alcohol or something like that because alcohol is frowned on in the Hindu culture. And, um, uh, you know, if you're wanting to practice a true outlaw path or a path of Tantra or something like that, in the West, what it's really going to look like, in my opinion, is you'll pick back up that Christianity that's so obnoxious to you and so obviously wrong in so many ways, and you'll you know, try to build monogamous, meaningful, committed relationships because that's the really, you know, it's like so, many, so much stuff that used to be conventional morality is really transgressive now. Interesting. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. I've never considered it that way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, that's a that's a topic for another time. Of yeah, like, yeah. Uh, totally. The, the the messiness of the relationship culture currently. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll get into that on a, on a future one. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on, man. I, I can I can say from the bottom of my heart, like you meeting you has been such a deep pleasure with every interaction. Like you're you're an inspiration for oh, what thank you're you. doing spiritually and the way you show up in the world and the way you communicate with people. 
I love it, man. I love having you in my life, and I'm so happy uh, to be back in Nashville. Just because I yeah. bump elbows with you at work and on, on the on the mat, and just yeah. I feel the same way. I was. I think I told you I was really impressed when um, when we knew for sure that you were coming back because you know me and Rob Cathers and just people who are staying in contact with you. I we would always you know. When do you think Dave's coming back? When's he coming back? I would always ask Rob, oh, what's, what date's he coming, you know? And then when it was finally kind of announced that, you, you know, kind of people knew you were coming back. And I remember the first day you came back into the store and just how universally everyone was happy to see you. Like there was not one person who was like, oh, Dave's coming back. Okay, and yeah. There was not <laughs> one person like that. And it was so impressive because... I mean, I know lots of people like me, and I'm pretty easy to get along with. But I'm a I'm absolutely certain that there, you know, in in my life, not everybody would be happy to see me return <laughs> somewhere, um, and and not everybody would be sad to see me go. Uh, but with you, I think that in the same way, like I was so excited because I felt like when you moved, that I was like almost robbed of this opportunity. I was just starting to get to know you. You yeah. just done your TED talk. You're starting to train all that kind of stuff and, and then you were leaving and it was like oh man and I was I was so I'm really glad that you're back too yeah that, that connection our connection as well as like so many other uh, aspects of being at Astro is like you know I was driving around with the intention of leaving indefinitely yeah back at the beginning of the year and I was like what am I doing yeah like there's there's just like I can go so much deeper here yeah yeah so it wasn't even end of the day it wasn't a question right I, I had to come back yeah that's yeah. a good place unfinished work Yes, indeed. And uh, in terms of everybody being excited for me to come back, a uh, funny story real quick is I came into the break room. Uh, by the way, we work at Trader Joe's, uh, which doesn't really matter. But yeah. <laughs> we work there, but uh, it's a big community of people. I come into the break room, and um, like you're saying, almost universally, everybody was excited to see me, and our friend Adam Levine was yeah. like, I don't care what anybody says. I'm over it. Yeah, that was so. That's totally perfectly Adam and also hilarious. Yeah. He's like, I don't. I, I'm already sick of you being back. Yeah. He was like, Oh, Dave's back! Hooray! Oh, so good. So good. And it's, I'm, I'm, I appreciate that energy because it keeps things light. Man. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, and uh, I can't wait to do another one, man. Yeah, me too. I'll have to. We'll, we'll maybe uh, we'll do another podcast, do a YouTube video, or something. Like get cool. you on my channel. It'd be great. Yeah, I yeah. think uh, I think the way that it's working out right now with Chase and I is I think he's gonna until he moves down to Asheville in a couple of months. I think he's gonna record episodes on Sundays, nice. post on Sundays, and I'm gonna do Wednesdays. So That's sweet. That's great. I'll try to keep it regular. And yeah. Cool. Get in that arena. Let's get in maybe. the arena. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Uh, catch y'all on the other side. Peace.